Well, uh, I'm going to ask uh, long-term Christians in the room to fill in the blank for me. Now, if you have not been around church for a long time, I don't, I don't expect you to be able to fill in this blank. But if you have been around church for a while, I think you should pretty easily be able to fill this in. So if you can, fill in the blank. Christianity is not about religion. It's about... Oh my goodness, you guys are so good. You knew the answer to the question. A plus. Very good. Okay, so uh, that's not totally true, but, but it is important. Those two things, so, so religion and relationship, just to clarify, they're not opposed to each other. Right? They're, not, they're not competing with each other, but sometimes overly religious people who are looking for rules are looking for a structure, right? And the reason we say that is to emphasize about Christianity that Christianity is primarily about relationship. It's not about us trying to perform for God. It's not about us trying to get something from God. It's not about us trying to earn a place with God. It's not even primarily about us being approved by God. It is about us having relationship with God. This is core to the nature of the Christian faith. In fact, as you look at the example of Jesus, it's interesting how much time he spent in relationship with people. He ate meals with people, right? He listened to them. He built strong relationships. He spent most of his ministry on earth, not uh, primarily gathering up masses of people to follow him, although masses of people were interested in following him. He spent most of his ministry, most of his effort, most of his energy pouring into 12 people and just them, right? So Christianity is about relationship, and this is core. This idea of relationship is core to understanding the nature of Christian faith. Okay, so hold that there. Uh, We're going to go with a different idea real quick, but that idea connects. So everybody in the room, look at your neighbor and tell them this. Say, God in the New Testament is the same as God in the Old Testament. All right, now turn to your other neighbor, and if you don't have a neighbor next to you, then just go and talk to thin air. Uh, All right, uh, say this. God in the New Testament is the same as God in the Old Testament. Very good. He does not change. That means that whatever characteristics of God that we see in the earliest parts of Scripture we should expect to see those characteristics carried through into the later parts of Scripture. And, by the way, whatever characteristics we see in the later parts of Scripture, we should know that those have gotten there because they have developed out of characteristics we see in the earlier parts of Scripture. So why do these two ideas that we talked about this morning matter and how do they connect? Well, over the past, let's say, 150 years, Bible teaching and Bible understanding in our culture has kind of degraded or devolved to a point where this narrative uh, that I'm about to share with you is broadly accepted. And the narrative is this. The narrative is that the God of the New Testament, the one who sent Jesus, he is loving and gracious. He wants relationship with people. And we've broadly, everybody's like, yes, that's why we spend, we spend so much time in the New Testament. We love the New Testament because it shows us this picture of a loving and gracious God. And God is indeed loving and gracious and he wants relationship. 
But they say, and the, the narrative that's accepted is like, but the God of the Old Testament is vindictive and overly rule-oriented, right? He wants conformity and vengeance, right? That's the story that's told. Now, you, if you spent time in church, like, you know that that's not true. Like, I don't have to tell you that, that framing things in that way is not true, but broadly... That is the accepted narrative about the Bible. That's how people understand what the Bible is. And this greatly misunderstands the Bible, right? It fails to take it at face value. Because, uh, you know, just FYI, God in the New Testament fully intends to take vengeance on his enemies, right? Like we need to clarify that that is actually a story that the New Testament tells. And then, more importantly for what we're talking about today, God in the Old Testament clearly and deeply desires and pursues relationship with his people. That's what he wants. We see it clearly. He displays it with clarity. And that's what we're going to look at today in Leviticus. So uh, Leviticus chapter 3, just to, to give us a bit of a refresher, Leviticus is in the middle of uh, the, the first five books of the Bible called the Torah, right? This is, and we've defined the Torah already, the Torah is God's word of training people for relationship with him. Right, so, so, and in fact, Leviticus being right in the middle, we talked about how that makes it uh, almost like the most, most important or the, the thing that is most emphasizing the characteristics that God is trying to train his people in. This is why kids, when they were learning scripture, the first thing that they would memorize was the book of Leviticus in the Jewish culture, right? That's the first thing that they would go to because it is making the central points about God that the Torah as a whole, and by the way, the Bible as a whole, is seeking to make. Leviticus is making those same points and emphasizing them. So, so Leviticus opens up, and it talks about five different kinds of offerings, and that's what we've been looking at for the last few weeks. We, uh, last, or the very first week, we talked about the burnt offering or the burnt sacrifice, how the entire thing, goes up, that you bring an animal and not one piece of it goes to anybody else. It all goes up to God, the, the whole thing. The, the idea that that conveyed to us is this concept of God is not interested in just part of us. He wants all of us, right? So then week two, we looked at, um, Pastor Don walked us through the grain or the gift offering. The idea of gratefulness, the idea that uh, we bring our grain as kind of an acknowledgement that we only have it because God gave it to us in the first place. And so we take a portion of it and bring it back to God as a means of saying thank you for providing for us. Thank you for showing up for us time and time again. So these two pieces form for us core concepts to, to be able to understand and relate to God. Right? That he wants all of us and not just a part of us. That all that we have is a gift from him and so we give back to him to thank him. So the next offering informs another core aspect of how God desires to relate to his people. Leviticus 3.1 says this. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering... Now, we tend to think of peace as non-conflict, and we've talked about this many times before. The, the peace in the Bible, the peace that the Bible describes, is much more than simply the absence of conflict, right? It's shalom. That's literally the word that is used here. The word, it's a shalom offering. Shalom, 
means wholeness flowing from the right ordering of things. Right? It's not just the absence of conflict. It's the idea of looking at a situation and saying everything about this situation is the way it's supposed to be. Like this is the way it's supposed to be. So, so, so this is an offering connected to wholeness then, right? It has the name uh, that's interchangeable with it. In fact, you'll see some people use this name for this offering. It's called the fellowship offering, right? So, so how does it get that name? Well, the idea is that the right ordering of things is actually like it starts with us being at one with our creator, right? God made us. He made us for relationship with himself. We are joined in love to him, Right? The idea that we can be with him where he is, that we can be fully known and fully loved by him. And that experience is an experience that is central to the idea of shalom, that we can be fully known and fully loved by God, which is why the word peace and the word fellowship are interchangeable for this offering. That means that the point of this offering is to reflect wholeness in our relationship with God, to reflect fellowship with God, to reflect relationship, to reflect shalom. And so this offering reflects the right ordering of things. So the peace offering says, this is the way things are supposed to be. Every time they would give it and they would experience it, and we're going to talk about what that experience looks like in just a second, but The experience is meant to tell Israel time and again, this is the way things are supposed to be. This is wholeness. This is the right ordering of things. So let me just say quickly, not to shame anyone, uh, but to invite us, right? Our experiences of anxiety, of discontent, our experiences of an angry spirit, our times that we lack joy, our chasing of empty wells, right? All of these are symptoms of living disconnected from God. And this morning, we're going to learn some really good news about what is central to God's character. That he wants a way for people who are disconnected from him to be connected to him, to experience wholeness with him. So no matter who you are, the invitation to us this morning is a deeper experience of wholeness in our relationship with God. Okay, so what is distinctive about this offering that reflects shalom? Uh, We're going to examine this kind of from two different perspectives. So we're going to look at chapter 3, but then uh, what's interesting kind of in the way this is ordered is that for some of the offerings uh, later on in the book of Leviticus, it comes back and gives us additional information about them. So we're going to look at chapter 3, but also what chapter 3 shows us is that This idea of God's perspective or God's place in the offering. It tells us what God gets out of the offering. But then in chapter 7, chapter 7 comes back and tells us kind of about the offerer's perspective. What they get, what they experience. What, what, if I were going to bring this offering, what would my experience be like? So it goes on in in chapter 3, verse 1, and says... If he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. Some of this is familiar to us as uh, we talked about the burnt offering before. But what's contrary to the burnt offering here is that the peace offering could be male or female. 
Now, if you read all of chapter three, you'll uh, notice two additional sets of instructions. We're not gonna read all of chapter three this morning, but there, uh, there is one kind of instruction for herds or cattle. That's if you're going to bring cattle, this is, these are the procedures you follow. Uh, there's also uh, instructions for flocks or sheep. That's if you're going to bring sheep, follow these instructions. And then finally, the third is for goats. If you're going to bring a goat, follow these instructions. And all of these relate to the idea of giving people who have various socioeconomic statuses the ability to still bring this offering. But contrary to the burnt offering, you might notice, or if you remember back the burnt offering, you could bring a dove or you could purchase a dove to bring for the offering. You can't bring a bird for this offering. And that's very important and very central to the idea of the offering. Birds were actually not substantive enough to fulfill the purpose of this offering. Now, you might be asking, why not? And we are going to discover that together as we keep reading. Verse 2. He shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. This, again, is consistent with what we saw with the burnt offering. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. Again, consistent with the burnt offering. Remember why they throw the blood against the sides of the altar. It's because the altar is outside of the tent. So God lives in his living room inside the tent. That is the place of holiness, the place of purity. The the altar, though, is out here with us, with death and sin. And that altar is all the time getting polluted by our death and sin. And so the life of the thing is in the blood. What they're doing is they're taking the, the blood of the animal who has been sacrificed, the animal that is without blemish, that's perfect. They're throwing that blood against the altar as a way of purifying the altar because the life is coming to cleanse the death off of the altar. And so th- that's what's happening here. We s- we've seen that already with the burnt offering. In verse 3, it goes on. From the sacrifice of the peace offering as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, verse 4. The two kidneys with the fat, this is very graphic, but this is how it works, right? That is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys, Uh, verse 5. Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is, this offering that has been brought, it is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That's telling us the Lord is taking great delight in this offering. Verse 16. So, we've, we've gone through. All of the, everything between here and verse 16 is instructions on the different kinds of animals that you can bring, right? But verse 16 and 17 kind of sum up what all of chapter 3 is saying. So, verse 16, it says, all fat is the Lord's. Amen? (laughs) All fat is the Lord's. Verse 17, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. Now, we'll see later that the reason they can't eat blood is because the life of the thing is in the blood. They're not invited to consume life. The reason that they can't eat the fat is because it's the Lord's. It belongs to the Lord. So let's talk about why birds. Why, why birds are not substantive enough for the point of this sacrifice. It's because the point of this sacrifice is to create a feast, a meal, something that is going to be eaten. So 
Stick with that. But second, I want you to note one key difference from the burnt offering. Notice, in the burnt offering, they brought the whole animal, and the whole animal went on the fire, and it went up in smoke, the whole thing. That's not the case here. Here, it's just the specific parts that are getting placed on the altar, burned as an offering to the Lord. And there's an implication here. The parts that are not getting burned on the altar are for people. People get to have the parts that are not getting burned. Everything else that's not burned is then roasted and cooked for consumption. Right? It's meant to be eaten. So what part does God get? Well, God gets the fat, right? Why is that significant? Well, for the person living at that time, it's a little different from us today, the fat was the best part of the meat. It was the best that could be gotten out of the meat. It was the best that it had to offer. So imagine with me for a second, because I just want to kind of frame our heads at why God is saying this, why this is the framework that he's giving us. So imagine with me that you are going to go to a friend's house for dinner. Your friend has invited you over. And so what you're going to do is you're going to bring the meal, right? You're going to bring the meal with you to your friend's house. So you have cooked two steaks that you're going to have with your friend. Now, one of those steaks is pristinely cooked, like so well done. And the cut of meat that you got was just perfect. It's seasoned correctly. It's just everything about this steak is like the steak that you could dream of. And you prepared that steak, by the way. And then the other steak is, is pretty good. Right? Those are the two options. You have the pristinely cooked steak and the steak that's pretty good. Which steak do you give your friend? Now, yeah, that's right. You give them the one that you did awesome on, because you've never done a better job on a steak than you did on that steak, right? You share that with them, because you're coming over to your friend's house, and you, you want to bless your friend. You want to give your friend a good experience. You want to be hospitable to your friend, What's happening at the tabernacle is not far off from what I've just described. Like, just imagine God is your friend and you're going to his house, which was quite literally the case. They're going to God's house to bring food to him. Right now, this is not like us today, right? Like God does not live in this building, right? We don't, we don't bring sacrifices into buildings and that kind of stuff, right? But, like, like, the presence of God lives in and amongst us. That's all New Covenant stuff, right? Like, we are excited to be people who have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. But back then, God's presence dwelt in a specific place. And you brought to God the things that belonged to him at his place. So they come to God's house, and what God is doing is he, he is applying basic rules of hospitality to how people approach him. Right? He's saying... When you go as a guest to someone's home, what do you do? You recognize them as a person who is to be honored. And you honor them by bringing the best to them that you have to offer. The same is true with me. God says, I have a real house. I am giving you a real invitation and you really are my guests, right? This is not just some ethereal thing that's happening. We are having an interaction. We are meeting together. We're sharing a meal 
together. So treat me like a real person and give me your best. Do, like, do with me like you would do with anyone else. Right? Now, a few notes. Uh, they, were not meeting, uh, they were not eating meat all the time, not nearly like we do today. Meat was like a special treat for them, right? So, so primarily their diet uh, subsisted on grains, right? That was the primary uh, kind of resource for them. Uh, meat came along occasionally as a thing that was like a very special occasion. So, so take note of that. If you're eating meat, like this is a, a great opportunity, right? There, there's something significant happening. The second thing to take note of, is that the lessons of this sacrifice, they extended not just when they ate the meat from this sacrifice, they extended into every meal that they ate. Because it doesn't just say, you're not supposed to eat the fat when you uh, make this sacrifice. It says, you are never supposed to eat the fat. You never eat the fat, which means that every time they sat down to eat, it's like the Lord was saying, Every meal you eat at, I am the host, right? And the best part gets set aside for me. The best part is reserved for me. You don't eat the best part because I am the host at every meal that you're having. Okay, so, so parts of the picture are starting to come together. Remember, this is about wholeness, right? This is about relationship with God, peace, fellowship, right? In this expression of wholeness, we're bringing a meal over to God's house. We're giving God the best part of our meal since he's the host, right? And God enjoys that meal. It says it is a food offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord, right? It makes him happy that we would come to his house, that we would treat him with the best that we have to give. He gets a little giddy over it, right? He takes joy in this experience. Okay, so that's God's experience in this offering. So after, after some instruction on other sacrifices, in chapter 7, God comes back and focuses then on the experience of the offerer and the peace offering. Because even with all of the fat removed, you still have a whole lot of meat left, right? There's, there's still something significant there. And so more of the picture starts to come together in chapter 7. Leviticus 7.11. And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord. Verse 12, if he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened loaves mixed, mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. So this introduces us to one of the reasons that a person might bring a peace offering or a fellowship offering. So a fellowship offering could be brought for thanksgiving. Now this is similar to what uh, Pastor Don taught us about last week, right? The grain offering was a way of saying thanks to God. But in this event, kind of the way the celebration is working is instead of generally celebrating or thanking God, uh, what you're really doing is you're, you're celebrating something specific that God has accomplished, something that he's done, either a major obstacle in your life that he's overcome or a significant action that he's accomplished for your sake. It's coming to say, Thank you for this massive thing that you've done. The idea is you're looking at this and you're saying, I am so glad that God worked in such a clear way 
in that situation. So what do you do? Well, you bring your cow or your goat or your sheep to the priest. But if it's a Thanksgiving offering, you don't do just that, right? It says here that you're going to bring some bread too. You're going to prepare a lot of bread when you bring this sacrifice. And so we see two different kinds of unleavened bread that are mentioned here. But then also in verse 13, with the sacrifice of his peace offerings for Thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of leavened bread. So, right, he has, he has loaves of unleavened bread, loaves of leavened bread, along with the animal that he is bringing. And so this is a haul of food. Like all of the food that he's like, you, you got bread and a bag over your shoulder. You've got your animal that you're t- tugging along with your, on your rope. And you are bringing all of this to God's house. Verse 14. And from it, he shall offer one loaf from each offering. So each kind of bread, one loaf is given. It says as a gift to the Lord. But then it says after that, it shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings. So, so, so none of the loaves from this offering, none of them go on the fire. They go directly to the priest who cleanses the altar. If you were to skip down to verse 30, you'd also see that the priest who facilitates this sacrifice gets a thigh of the animal, right, an, an entire portion of the animal, and then all of the priests, they get the breast of the animal. Right, so that's, that's what you would see. The idea is the priests are getting to share in this feast that is being brought. Verse 15. The flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. Okay, so, so let's set this up. Because God has done something significant for you, has performed a significant act, has acted in a powerful way, you say, you know what? It's time for me to go to the altar with a heart of gratefulness. So you pack up this bounty of food, like as much as you can pile into your bags. Uh, You uh, pick out the the unblemished animal that you're going to take with you. And you've got uh, these bags of bread and an animal and you're taking it over to God's house. Why? Because God has invited you to do so. He says, hey, when you have something to celebrate, come on over. Right? There's a place for you to celebrate here. Do you see the relationship piece that's happening here? You go to the altar now, after you've arrived, you take the altar or you take the animal to the altar, you butcher that animal, and then you share the best part of the meat with the Lord, because he is the gracious host who has invited you to this meal. So just stop there. So, so you know that when you finish this, you're going to have food to bring back with you. Now, here it's clear that the experience of this offering was meant to convey the idea that in these moments of the fellowship offering, we like quite literally are sharing a meal and a moment of hospitality with God. And sharing a meal is a very intimate thing to do culturally. Like we, we eat meals all the time, right? And yes, it's still an intimate thing to do even in our culture to share a meal together. But back in that culture, it was even more so true that to share a meal with someone to share a table with them was a very intimate, close, relational thing to do with a person. So on its face, this is incredible that God is saying, come and share a meal with me. Because we, we shouldn't even be able to have relationship with God. Right? Our sin, 
our rebellion, it creates a barrier between us and God. We talked about this in week one, right? We, like, we had to bring a burnt offering and burn up the entire offering to do what? To make atonement for us. Because we were at odds with God. We could not have relationship with him. Like God and I are not at peace and something needs to be done about that. But here in this offering, well, the burnt offering's been offered. The, the, the atonement is achieved. And so now that we are at one with God, we simply share in a meal with God because what God really desires is intimate relationship with us. Right? He wants us to come over to his house. He wants us to bring a meal. He wants us to sit down at the table with him. Right? This is wholeness. This is shalom. This is what God had intended creation to look like from the beginning. It's so core to how we relate to him is as a real person who wants us to share in real relationship with him. Okay, so now that we've like really clarified that, You've given your sacrifice, right? You've brought your sacrifice, you've butchered it, you've, you've given the pieces, and so, so you've got now all of this meat and bread sitting around you. And then from this place where, where you have this experience, expression of wholeness and peace and fellowship with God, you give an overflow of that sacrifice, right? You give it to the priests. Well, why do you give it to the priests? Well, the priests helped you carry out this expression of wholeness, right? So, so you're, you're sharing some with the priest, the breast and the thigh and some of the bread, and all the priests then at this point get to experience the celebration that you're having with God. As you are now like so overwhelmed with thankfulness to God and, and you are just coming to say, God, I want to enjoy relationship with you, the priests now get to share in the overflow of what you are experiencing with God. So that's not the end of it, though. Like, you're taking something home with you. You're leaving this with something in your hands. In fact, you're leaving this with a lot in your hands. There is still a lot of meat left. There is so much meat. Like, have you, has anybody ever had, like, a cow or a pig butchered before? Like, uh, yeah. So that, that fills up your home for, like, a year. Like, a year's worth of meat. That's so much meat. Now, did you see how fast this has to be eaten? They have a day. They have until the end of the day, like, to finish this up. Do you know what this means? You're going to have a party. <laughs> That's exactly right. You're going to, you, you've got bread, and you've got meat, and your family is going to feast on this. Your household Everybody who works for you, who works with you, they're going to feast on this. In fact, I bet that your neighbors are going to come over because you sacrificed a peace offering. And they're going to get to share in the overflow of the shalom that you have with God. Right? So, so you've come and you've come to celebrate this wholeness of relationship with God, not because of anything you've done, but because God has been merciful enough to provide a pathway to relationship with him. And the people around you get to share in the bounty of that shalom. The priests, your family, your neighbors, they all get to experience the overflow of that wholeness. Right, so the fellowship offerings were significant because they not only were an expression of a whole relationship between you and God, but they brought the community together 
in wholeness around this idea of restored relationship with God. Right? They trained Israel that fellowship with God was core to their identity, that God is a real person with whom they have a real relationship who really does treasure them, but it also brought them together in relationship with each other around this reality, right? Because the overflow of the peace offering would have to be shared. Like you could not consume the whole thing on your own, even if you tried. You would be required to share it with the other people in your life. And so the peace offering brought them together in community. So there are two more instances, two more instances real quick that this sacrifice was made. So verses 16 and 17 of chapter 7, it says, But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice. And on the next day, what remains of it shall be eaten. So now it's kind of saying, well, in this instance, you get two days to eat it or to consume it. But verse 17, but what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. So, so in these instances, you had more time to eat the food. But then on the third day, for health reasons, the rest had to be burned up. And you could do this for uh, what it says is a free will offering, which a free will offering is simply just a, a simple expression of shalom with God, like it's not in, uh, instigated by any particular event. You're just saying, hey, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say I love God, right? I, I'm grateful for the relationship we share with each other. But you also had to do this. You, you had to make a peace offering when you came to make vows with God. In fact, the primary way that if you look through scripture at all of the examples that are displayed of the fellowship offering, of the peace offering, the primary place that you see it is in connection to vows that people make. Right, so, so vows are commitments, right? They're agreements on our part to set ourselves apart to some part uh, or, or some part of us aside to a particular purpose that is for God. So, so there are three specific times when this offering was required. The first was in the Feast of Weeks. Now, why is that important? Um, the, this Feast of Weeks is the feast where all of Israel, it, it, was, it took place 50 days after Passover. So Passover happens. It's Pentecost. Is really when the Feast of Weeks is. You're coming, and uh, on, on day 50, it was kind of a way of Israel for Israel to mark when God gave them the Ten Commandments and they entered into a covenant relationship with God when they said, all these things we will do, right? So, so they're marking this kind of commitment to God and God's commitment to them. That's what the Feast of Weeks was. And so what did they do? Well, they brought a peace offering at the Feast of Weeks. They shared in a peace offering. And when they brought this, they're remembering that the ultimate vow of the covenant uh, that, that God had invited them into, they're remembering that he is their God and they are his people, right? And so what do they do? They celebrate the reality of this relationship with a fellowship offering. This is important. The reason the, the connection of vows to a fellowship offering is important is because when we think of vows to God, we think of, God, I am going to do this for you. God, I am going to accomplish this for you. God, uh, we will do all of these things that you have told us to do. We commit ourselves to these things. And what the, the, the fact that a peace offering is given in connection to vows is reminding us that the core of this faith that we practice, it is not primarily grounded 
and the things that we commit to doing for God. It is primarily grounded in the fact that we share in relationship with him. We share in fellowship with him. So at the Feast of Weeks, they were to bring a peace offering when they remembered their commitment, their covenant with God in the Ten Commandments. The second, the other time that this is prescribed is in the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow is a vow of an individual uh, who is going to be set aside for exclusive service to the Lord for the entirety of their life. And in the midst of that commitment, they brought a fellowship offering in that commitment. They're marking the fact that the foundation of this vow that they're making is a meal-sharing relationship with God. The third time that we see this is uh, the offering given at the installation of priests. So priests are stepping into their professions as those who would manage the Lord's house, who would care for the tabernacle, who would help in the giving of offerings. They take this step of commitment into a vocation and they share in a peace offering to remind them that the foundation of what they are doing is not about what they do. It's about sharing in relationship with their God. So anytime people were at hinge moments in their life, right? You know, hinge moments where you say, okay, God, I am taking a clear step in this direction. This, this could have been coming to God in repentance. This could have been making any kind of a commitment to him. This could be dedicating themselves to a special purpose. Anytime this kind of thing happened, it was always marked with a fellowship offering so that they remembered this is not primarily about what you are doing. You are living out of shalom with me. The main point of all of this is to say this. God's desire is to delight in relationship with us as we delight in relationship with him. That is foundational to, to, to what he's trying to accomplish. Even as we heard la last week and the week before that, that first he makes atonement and then he calls us into thanksgiving, but it's to get us to this place where we are sharing in shalom with him. So when we get to the New Testament, this is not a surprising concept. Right, first of all, one of the most frequent activities we've talked about of Jesus in his earthly ministry, we witness him eating with people, right? But then on top of that, his sacrifice did something for those who believe in him, right? He took our sin on himself. He died in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that we could experience shalom with God, wholeness peace, relationship. Our sin should have made that impossible. In fact, it did make it impossible. But God so loved the world that he sent Jesus to make it possible for us to be in relationship with him. So that now in Christ, everything we do is out of this place of shalom and wholeness and relationship with God. So I want you to consider two passages with me briefly. Ephesians 2, 13 and 14. Verse 13 says this, But now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near 
by the blood of Christ. Now, what he's saying here is that, yes, the blood of Christ has brought us near to God. It has made us acceptable to God. It has made, us, uh, made it possible for us to have intimate relationship with him. But, but when he says brought near here in this case, he's also primarily saying God is taking groups of people who used to be at odds with each other, Jews and Gentiles primarily, right? He's taking those groups of people who used to be at odds with each other and he's bringing them together so that they can be one family. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, the in his flesh is sacrifice language, by the way, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In the Jewish temple, there was a literal wall that kept Jews and Gentiles separated. And now that wall of division, Paul is saying that wall of division is broken down because by his sacrifice, Jesus has broken down the hostility between us and God. As if to say, like, Jesus, by his blood, is welcoming us into wholeness with God. But now because we have wholeness with God, there is nothing that should be keeping us from each other. Right? Because the core thing that has had to be resolved is resolved in Jesus. Right, so if we believe in Jesus, we have fellowship with him, and we share fellowship with each other as a celebration of what he's accomplished. Okay, so, so one more New Testament piece, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation, right? So God is about the restoration of shalom, right? And it starts with him extending to all people the opportunity to be reconciled through Jesus, to be welcomed into delight-filled relationship with him. And from our place of being reconciled into shalom with God, there is an overflow of this peace offering that we have been given that we would extend this ministry of reconciliation to other people, that we would share in relationship with others and extend to them a message that they too can be reconciled into shalom with God. Why? Because this is God's core desire. He wants to delight in relationship with us and he wants us to delight in relationship with him. So what? So what? I have two key ones this morning. Uh, number one, life with God is communion, not contract. Life with God is communion, not contract. I know that there are many of us tend to think of the ways that we relate to God in terms of the things that we have to do or the things that we have to fix or the things that we have to get right. And, and then we concern ourselves saying, well, I don't think I can fix this or I don't think I can get this right and so it must not be good enough. And every time we're talking about what we think we can do and how we think we can do it with God, we're missing the point of what he's inviting us into. Right, because it is not primarily about what you can do or what you are going to do or what you are going to accomplish. It is about the fact that he has invited you into relationship with him. 
right? You are invited to experience wholeness with him. When, he, when it, Jesus is extended to you and Jesus comes and he dies and he takes your sin on himself and, and, and he says, hey, believe in me. He raises from the dead. He proves that he is powerful to accomplish these things. He, he does all of it. Not to say, now go and do these things and fix this. He does it to say, do you want relationship with your creator? Do you want relationship with your creator? Do you want to just live in delight with me? There is not one thing that you have to do to earn this. It is a gift to you if you'll receive it. He asks that question, and then he says, okay, now that you've received it, live out of it. Delight in it. Come to me in the morning. Enjoy my presence. Listen to my words as, as words of your father who's trying to instruct you and train you for relationship with him. This is the kind of thing that he extends to us, and he says, live out of this place of delight of relationship with me, of communion. So, so that's really important. The second piece that I would say is this, that our shared tables are the overflow of our communion with God. Right? As we, as we interact with each other, right? Or we'll, let's just talk about those who are far off first, those who may not yet know Jesus, those who are friends and neighbors, we're trying to build relationships with them, right? We, we get to share tables with people as an overflow of the things that God is doing in our lives. We get to invite them and we get to be generous with our listening and our asking of questions. We get, get to be generous in our serving and our time for other people that we might just simply bless our neighbors. But then as we bless them, we're, we're seeking because we know that if God wanted relationship with us, he must want relationship with them too. And so, so we're sharing in relationship with them and the hopes that we might extend to them the opportunity to be reconciled to him too, to know what it is to have shalom with their creator. So that's, that's the first piece I would say about that. But the second piece is that we're also invited to share tables with those who have been brought near. Y'all, we're having a picnic next week. We're having a party, Right? And we're doing that because God has broken down the dividing walls, right? He has brought us together. He's first reconciled us to himself. But because of that, we share in this familial relationship with each other. We get to express the love that he has showed us in our relationships with one another. And that is a real gift. Church, God, he... he wants to delight in relationship with us, and he wants us to delight in relationship with him. Would you pray with me, please? God, we are grateful that you have extended to us the opportunity for relationship, the blessing of relationship. Lord, that you've shown us that this uh, faith that we have in you is not primarily about the things that we do, but as we, as we live in wholeness and shalom with you, then out of us, out of the overflow of that, comes the things that you are seeking to produce in this world. Out of the fullness of that comes reflections of the coming kingdom. 
out of the fullness of that, we get to show people what wholeness and restoration looks like. Right, so, so Lord, I think my prayer today is that you would help us to be people who are seeking and living in and soaking in that shalom, that wholeness in relationship with you. That we might be the kind of people through whom it just overflows onto others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.